0: Good morning, church. Luke chapter 6. Been going through the book of Luke, as you know. If you are visiting with us, you wouldn't know that. But uh, that's where we're at, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 today, as Jesus calls the 12. We come to this passage of Scripture, Jesus choosing 12 disciples, whom he also named as apostles. So let's take a look at it. Luke 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's already upset the Jewish religious leaders, so much so that they're plotting to kill him. Jesus just would not follow their rules, their regulations, their rituals. He wouldn't get with their program. Uh, all the things that they had determined were an interpretation to the law of Moses and the way to follow the law, all these burdens they placed upon people, all the different ways that you had to keep the Sabbath day, as we talked about last week, all those things, Jesus just wouldn't get with their program. On top of that, The popularity of Jesus was still increasing with the people, which caused so much jealousy on the part of the Jewish religious leaders. They wanted the people to to basically revere them and follow what they said. They were the authorities. and So they wanted Jesus, Jesus gone, and they wanted him gone for good. And in verse 11 of Luke 6, it says they discussed together what they might do to Jesus. And in Mark's account, in Mark 3, verse 6, it says the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know what they're planning to do and what they want to do. They want him gone. Now, Jesus already knew that his time on earth would not be long. He knew that his life on earth would be short-lived. His work on earth would be short. In fact, all he could do was start the work. And what was that work? Well, later on in Luke's Gospel, Luke 19, verse 10, he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his work. He knew that he would only get to, get to start that. It would be short-lived. Jesus had come with this message that the kingdom of God was at hand, preaching, and teaching would be the method chosen to spread that message. And by this time, Jesus had made a very considerable impact on the public mind. A lot of people had witnessed His miracles. They had, had witnessed his, his healings, His driving out of demons. Many more had heard Him teach, and they knew that He was one that taught as one that had authority, not as the the religious leaders of their day, not as the scribes and Pharisees who would constantly quote other authorities, other rabbis. But Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He taught with authority. But now Jesus faced two very practical problems. First, he had to find some way of making his message permanent. Because once he's gone... How will people continue to learn about him and the gospel? How will people continue to learn that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world to save them? How could he make that message stick? But second, he had to find some way to spread the message. Not just make it permanent, but to make it spread. There were no TVs, radios, newspapers, Internet, texting, messaging, Twitter, email, smartphones. None of the things that we have accessible to us today. There was none of that. So how could he spread the gospel message so that it would go throughout the world? He wanted to make it permanent, and he wanted it to spread everywhere. So there was a way that he could solve both problems. He decided to choose certain men on whose hearts and lives he could write his message and who would go into all the world and tell everyone they could about him. He had to pass the baton to a team that would faithfully carry out his wishes. But who could he trust to do that? And so as we read in our text today, He brings His disciples to Him, and from those disciples He chose 12 that He designated as apostles. And we read their names. Now, the scene that we read this morning only encompasses about five verses, but I think it's one of the most crucial moments in all of Jesus' ministry. So important, in fact, that He bathed that process in prayer for the entire night before. Would you do that when you face a critical decision? Would I do that? And I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but if I ask the question, how many of you have prayed throughout an entire night about something? We might be embarrassed to have to raise our hands in fact, embarrassed not to raise our hands. Yeah, when I stop and think about praying through the entire night, you know what comes to my mind? I don't know if I've got enough stuff to pray for. And that's so, I, I, I hesitate to use a word. I think that's dumb on my part. I mean, ju- if you start getting specific about prayer, instead of using generalizations, You can pray for a long time. But do we do that? Jesus spent the whole night in prayer before this decision. I think some of us might think that it would be more important to get a good night's sleep so that we could be clear-headed in the morning to make those important decisions. But when you study the life of Christ, you'll always find it was in prayer that this and all other important decisions were made. And of all the people that followed Jesus he's going to choose 12 in whom he could invest himself. Now, he's still going to be teaching crowds and multitudes of people, but in private sessions, he's going to pour out his plans and his very character to these 12. Even in the midst of his greatest popularity, Jesus realizes that the way to turn the world upside down is to invest very heavily in a few, and it works. Because... 11 of these 12 men would become the foundation of the church built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ himself. He chose 12 whom he designated as what? Apostles. The Greek word apostolos has a range of meaning in the New Testament. Essentially, it indicates a messenger sent with a commission. A messenger sent with a commission that, that's the basic meaning of the word. And the one sent is granted the authority of the one that sends him. So these chosen delegates would carry with them the authority of Christ. And here we're specifically dealing with the group of 12 apostles, the foundation of the church. It was their job to preach the gospel of the kingdom, especially after Jesus was gone. They were sent out into all the world with the authority of Jesus to proclaim Him as the King. And to ensure their success, Jesus endowed them with a special power. The Spirit came upon them, and they were able to cast out demons and to heal people. And understand, Jesus Jesus knew what it meant to be an apostle because he was sent on a mission as well with the authority of the one that sent him, which is why he said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he sent those men into all the world, giving them of his authority to carry out that work. And I think it's significant Christianity began with a group. It began with a group. The Christian faith is something which from the beginning had to be discovered and lived out in fellowship, in relationships with people. By contrast, the whole essence of the way of the Pharisees was that it separated men from their fellow man. The very name Pharisee means what? Do you remember? Separated one. That's, that's what a Pharisee was. By attitude and lifestyle, they separated themselves from the people. But the whole essence of Christianity was that it bound men to their fellow man. Listen, brothers and sisters, we are to live with each other and for each other in the Lord. So the apostles here, they're listed four times in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 10 in Mark chapter 3, here in Luke 6. And in Acts chapter 1, each list gives the names in a different order. Uh, We should also note that a number of these fellows have more than one name. Simon is also called Peter. Judas is also called Lebeus or Thaddeus, not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas. Bartholomew is most likely the Nathaniel of John chapter 1. Thomas, the Aramaic name. Is also called by a Greek name. You remember what that is? Didymus. Didymus. Yeah. And furthermore, it's likely that several of the apostles were related to each other and possibly even related to Jesus as well. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are believed to be very likely cousins of Jesus. The latter, James, Simon, and Judas, according to some scholars, appear to be brothers, and they think that it's possible they were cousins of Jesus through one of Joseph's brothers. I can't prove that, but that's just what some scholars believe. But let's take a closer look at each one of these twelve men. We're going to start with Peter. Peter was not the first disciple, nor is he necessarily above the others, But He is a preeminent one in the sense that we have greater knowledge of Him than any other apostle except possibly John or Paul. Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost opened the gates of salvation for the Jews as he told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins, and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus had said to Peter, I'll give to you the keys to the kingdom, and he used those keys to unlock the gates for the Jews on the day of Pentecost. But he was also chosen to go to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and teach the gospel to them, thus opening the gates of salvation to all the Gentiles as well. Praise God. That's you and me. Peter also wrote two letters in the New Testament, First and Second Peter. In John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. History testifies that Peter was crucified by Emperor Nero in Rome in the year 64 AD. There is somewhat weaker evidence that he was crucified upside down, not feeling worthy to be crucified exactly as Jesus had been. That part can't be proven with certainty, but one thing we can be certain about is that Peter's death, according to John 21:19. His death glorified God. Well, yours? Something to think about. So that's Peter. Second is Andrew, Peter's brother. Andrew was the one who brought Peter to Jesus. When I think of Andrew, I think of humility. Here is a man who I believe was willing to let the spotlight shine on someone else. In this case, his brother. I think Andrew had a logical, calculating mind. As he said in John 6, verse 9, Well, Lord, five loaves and two fish can't feed the (laughs) 5,000. He was working it out in his head. According to Hippolytus, an early historian, Andrew ultimately went and preached to the Scythians, which is modern-day Georgia in Europe, He also went to the Thracians to preach, which is modern-day Bulgaria. He was ultimately crucified, suspended on an olive tree at Petrae, a town of Achaia, or Greece, and was buried there. Crucified for his testimony about Jesus. And what about those brothers, James and John? Jesus nicknamed those two as what? The sons of thunder. And some of your Bibles will say the sons of Boanerges or something, which is translated as thunder. Possibly because those two men wanted to call down fire from heaven when a group of Samaritans would not welcome Jesus, but rather rejected him. James was the first of the twelve to die. The first martyr of the twelve, as he was beheaded by Herod in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. And when Herod saw that pleased the Jews, he set his sights on Peter. But if you recall, the angel let Peter out of the prison and so on. John, his brother, his vigor sustained him to a ripe old age of somewhere between 90 to 100 years old. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. In the Gospel of John, he always referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was his way of referring to himself. And while Jesus was on the cross, he committed the care of his mother Mary to John. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. And from that time on, John took Mary into his care. Later on, John was exiled to that little isle of Patmos late in his life because of his testimony about Jesus. That was where he was at when he received the revelation from Christ that we know is the book of Revelation. A man of great faith, not afraid to denounce sin in strong terms. John would use words like liar, antichrist, deceiver, children of the devil, murderer. And he may have been the only one of the twelve to die a natural death rather than being killed because of his testimony. James and John were likely cousins of Jesus, and Peter, James, and John comprised that inner circle of Jesus' closest apostles. They were the only three present when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it, and when Jesus went a little bit further to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John, that inner circle. Philip was from Bethsaida an early disciple of John the Baptist. He was an evangelist. We, he went and brought Nathaniel to the Lord. He was a man that was approachable because some Greeks came to him in John 12, verse 20, and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They came to Philip and asked him. He also was of a mindset that wanted evidence that he could see and touch. So after Jesus tells his disciples he must leave them in John the 14th chapter, and he concludes in saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Two verses later in verse 8, Philip says, Show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. (laughs) Wanted that kind of evidence. Wanted to see God. In John 6, verses 5 through 7, Philip may have needed to have his faith stretched because Jesus asked him where they could get food for the 5,000. And Philip said, well, 200 denarii won't be enough to feed this group of people. Even though Jesus, the text says, already knew what he was going to do, he was testing Philip. According to Hippolytus, Philip preached and was executed in what today is eastern Turkey, crucified in Hierapolis with his head downward in the time of Domitian, the Roman emperor, and he was buried there. Nathaniel he was the one that Philip told that he had found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael replied by asking, what? Yeah, can anything good come out of Nazareth? A man who said what he thought. A man that was blunt, honest. Jesus called, called him an Israelite in whom is no guile or no deceit. He was genuine. What you see is what you get in Nathanael. Only John's gospel Uses the name Nathaniel. Matthew, Luke, and Mark use the name Bartholomew. According to the early historian Hippolytus, Bartholomew preached in India and took with him the gospel according to Matthew to give to the Indian people there. He too was ultimately crucified and was buried in Alanum, a town in Armenia or modern day southern Georgia in Europe. Matthew We also know as Levi. We've talked about him recently, the writer of the gospel according to Matthew. And in that gospel, he always refers to himself as the publican or as the tax collector. Like he never ceased to marvel at the wonder of God's grace, recalling the depth from which grace had raised him. There are some conflicting accounts as to how Matthew died. The earliest accounts have him dying a natural death. But the later accounts, the majority of those have him dying in Ethiopia after being impaled to the ground by spears and then being beheaded. Next comes Thomas, also called Didymus. The word Didymus means the twin, but a twin to who? Some say a twin to Matthew, Levi. Because in all of the lists, in the four lists, those two names are always linked together. But we really don't know for sure. But whenever Thomas' name is mentioned, we always think of what? Doubting Thomas, sure. He wanted to test the truth by the evidence of his senses. So he refused to believe Jesus had risen from the dead until he could see him and touch him. Which ultimately, he got an opportunity to do. Hippolytus tells us that Thomas was a missionary to India, and he died there after being thrust through with a pine spear at Calamane in India, and that he was buried there. James, the son of Alphaeus, was also known as James the Less in Mark fifteen forty maybe to distinguish him from the more prominent James, who was the son of Zebedee, John's brother. This is not the James who wrote the book of James. That James was a half-brother to Jesus, but that's not this James. Some scholars believe this James was a cousin of Jesus. But again, Hippolytus records that James, the son of Alphaeus, when preaching in Jerusalem, was stoned to death by the Jews and was buried there beside the temple. And that's really all we know of him. Thaddeus, also called Judas, the son of James, may have been called Thaddeus in the early days to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot. We know really very little else about him. Hippolytus records he preached to the people of Edessa and to all Mesopotamia, and then died in Bartus, which is modern day Beirut. Simon the Zealot intrigues me because a zealot in Jesus' day was someone who hated Rome because they had control over the Jews. Some say that zealots were basically right-wing political terrorists. They were like guerrilla fighters and warriors. They weren't afraid to kill Romans or to assassinate anyone on site, any Jew on site. Who had dealings with the Romans, and they called their passion Holy Zeal, thus the Zealots. So I wonder what Simon the Zealot thought of Levi the tax collector who used to work for Rome. And how did Jesus manage that situation and keep those two apart? Hmm. And yet Jesus could take that passion and zeal and use it in a controlled, positive way. And according to Hippolytus, Simon the Zealot became bishop of Jerusalem after James the Just and died there at the age of 120. And then finally, Judas Iscariot, called Iscariot from his native city of Kerioth, a single apostle that was not faithful to Jesus until death. He was an outsider the only apostle that was not from Galilee, as far as we know, always listed last in the list and always identified as the one who betrayed Jesus. His motives remain a mystery. Suffice it to say, the only motive even hinted at in the Gospels is greed. What an epitaph for a tombstone. He betrayed Jesus. Why would Jesus choose someone that He knew would betray? And that question will be debated until the Lord returns. And all I can say is Jesus offered Him His chance, and He didn't take it. It will forever remain a mystery, but it serves as a warning to us all. And so these are the twelve men Jesus chose to be apostles. None of them were qualified by human standards. They weren't the cream of the crop of anything. They weren't the most skilled or the most educated or the most gifted by any means. They weren't the most sophisticated. They weren't the most noble or the wisest or the best. In fact, the one thing they all had in common was this. They were ordinary. Just ordinary. And yet 11 of those men changed our world. Had it not been for them and their work, you and I wouldn't know Jesus. You and I wouldn't be saved. You and I wouldn't have the promise of everlasting life. Because those men obeyed the command of Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that Jesus had commanded them. That's exactly what they did. And they changed our world. Now let me make two observations in closing. The first is this. Our mission must be the same one Jesus had. The same mission these apostles undertook, which is to seek and to save the lost. Our number one priority as a church has to be preaching the gospel to a lost and dying world. And I'm not talking just about pulpit preaching. I'm talking about all of us sharing the good news of Jesus with those who need to come to know Him. We can't get distracted by side issues that keep us from saving souls. And folks, when the people of God are saving souls, they are changing the world. Amen? And Jesus and these apostles were consumed with it wasn't something they just did on weekends. It was their life. And most of these apostles died because of it. But because of them, you and I are here in this house of worship today as brothers and sisters in Christ. So that first observation is, our mission is the same one Jesus had and the same one he gave to those 12. 11 that carried it out. 12 counting Matthias who replaced Judas. But here's the second observation. Jesus is still looking for ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. Still looking for extraordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. Can he he use you? He has called you. Just as he called these apostles, you have been called. Don't think so? Listen to these scriptures. They're on the screen. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 4, 4, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14, And it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy six twelve. Fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. First Peter 1.15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And let me tell you, that's just a small sample of the scriptures that tell us that God has chosen us and that God has called us. He's called us to change the world by saving the souls of dying men and women and boys and girls. You have been called to the same mission that God called His Son, Jesus, to seeking to save the lost will you answer the call like the 11 did or will you be like the one and the choice is yours a simple message with a simple point let's go change the world amen stand and sing.